Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Book of James, chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 through 20. The text, of course, will be verse 14, as you have it listed in the bulletin. James chapter 2. Over near the end of the New Testament, go to Revelation, turn left, little ways and you'll find it. Or if you find Hebrews, just turn one book to the right and you'll be there. Chapter 2, verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and hath not works, and faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith, by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Let us pause for a moment. Lord, take your word this morning and use it in a mighty way to instruct our hearts and souls and minds. Take it to lead someone to the Lord. Give me those things that you would have me say that I might properly impart the truth of your word to this congregation. For in Christ's name I pray. Amen. There's always been a conflict even since the days of the Lord as to how a person is saved. And we haven't yet completely learned that lesson because there are differences of approaches to the method of salvation or what is needed to be saved. Many people will turn to this passage that we have read and said, here is the way that one is saved. That is, you're saved by what you do. And others will turn over to Paul's writing to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which is very familiar to you all, which says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now the question immediately arises, do we have a conflict? 
between Paul and James. James was the brother of Jesus. The world of conflict as to how a person is saved. Is one saved by what he does? Is that what James actually is saying? Or is one saved some other way, maybe as Paul has said, by grace through faith? Well, hopefully, before we're done this morning, that you will have a clear image in your mind as to really what the scripture is teaching on this subject. Let's first of all take that which Paul said to the Ephesians in that second chapter, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does it mean? Grace, first of all, is the, is the key word that pops out to us. If you go to the book of Romans, which is right after the book of Acts, so turn there, you can find that fairly easy, and go to the book of Romans chapter 5 for a moment, and see what we have in these verses that deals with the particular subject of grace. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. I want you to notice something in this particular passage of Scripture. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul is saying here, if I'm interpreting right, it's not too difficult to find somebody who would die for a good man. There probably will be many of us, or a few of us, hopefully at least one of us, somewhere in this congregation, who would be willing to give his life to save a good person. I wouldn't have done that for my daughter and died in her place had I been given that choice. You would have died for some of your friends and family and loved ones had you had that choice. It would not be too difficult to find somebody who would die in the place of a good person. But I think we would have difficulty finding somebody here who would die for a despicable sinner doomed for hell, such as Adolf Hitler, maybe Noriega, and a few other infamous people that we could possibly name, or some that you may have known who have not gotten their names in the newspaper that are the scum of the earth. It would be difficult to find a person who would die for that individual. 
I'm not about to offer my life in the place of Noriega. Nor I suspect are you. But there was one who did. God sent his own son who would die for a sinner. And when we dissect that, we realize that there is not a person, say Jesus himself, that has ever sat foot upon earth, but what is a sinner? Lost, with no hope of salvation, and yet God loved that person enough. Jesus loved me and you and every other person in this world enough that he died for us. A sinner. He died for the Noriegas and the Adolf Hitlers and all the other people of the world as much as he died for you and me. The willingness to give one's life for that which is so sinful speaks of the love that God has. And that's called grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. You know, when you have an insurance policy and you forget to pay your premium on time, you usually have 30 days of grace or some such time frame. And if you plead hard enough and give them a good enough argument, they'll even extend that grace period a few days to give you a chance to get your payment in. You don't deserve it. Because the policy says you must pay from this time to this time. But you've got it. Undeserved. There's not one of us that deserves to be saved. We are because of God's mercy. And he says that this comes, grace comes through faith in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That's man's part. To do something called faith. Well, what is this thing called faith? People will say, well, all it takes is faith. I got that. Then I can just go and do as I please, because I'm saved. Let me quote Jesus now in a rebuttal of that statement. He said, it's not he that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. Matthew 7, 21. Not he that says, but he that does. If we are saved by the grace of God, 
And our job, our part, is to exercise something called faith. What is it that we must do? What is this thing that we have called faith that we're supposed to put into the picture? Let me, let me say three or four or five things about faith. First of all, faith is more than simply an intellectual assent to believing something. I'll refer you to back to the scripture that we read in James chapter 2 and verse 19 when James said, Thou believest that there is one God, you do well. I would suggest that there is not a person in this congregation but what believes in God. You do well. That's good. That's fine. You're commended for believing in God. But now let me cut you down with James' words when he said, the devils believe also. Then he adds one more word, and tremble. Do you realize the devils believe in God and the devils shake and tremble because they know their destiny is eternal hell? Eternal torment, eternal punishment, the lake of fire, using any terms you want. But they're smart enough to be trembling in knowing their destiny. Man stands up and flaunts his belief in God and says, I believe in God. Don't know enough to tremble. Faith is not an intellectual assent to something with one's mind only. And I'll say more about that at the close of the message. Tie that in. Because the intellectual part is very important. I do not believe that there are very many people in this world who will deny the existence of a supreme being if they would be honest. The atheistic country of Russia has finally come to the place to acknowledge that they cannot destroy the faith that their people have in God and are now taking a different approach. The church has remained alive in Russia all of these years, in spite of the fact that the, the doctrine of the Russian government is atheism, it has never been stamped out. There has always been a remnant of people who have believed and have passed on their belief to their children and their children's children. And it cannot be stamped out because God promised in words of Jesus the gates of hell shall not prevail against it and return to the church. Wherever you would go, there are all kinds of people who know in their mind there is a God and somehow seem to think that that's sufficient. You've heard the story in its many versions of the man who was able to 
walk a tight rope or cable across Niagara Falls while being blindfolded. And he made his way across and got to the other side and took his blindfold off and said to a young boy standing there, Do you believe that I can wheel you across in the wheelbarrow? And the boy said, Yes. And the man said, Well, get in then. And the boy disappeared. It's one thing to know something was one's mind. It's an entirely different thing to commit oneself to what he says he believes. Here comes the problem. We've got lots of mentally saved people who are lost because they've not been willing to commit themselves to what they say. I've had people say to me, well, just as soon as I know that I can hold out, that I'm going to be saved. Listen, you ain't going to make it. And I know better English than that phrase. I just want to use that phrase. You see, it's the picture of a man drowning. And the man who was drowning sees an arm reaching down to him in the water. And have you ever heard of a drowning man say, just as soon as I know that I can hold on to your hand, I'm going to take a hold of it. A drowning man will grasp at a straw. He will take every opportunity of the most minute thing in order to see if it can possibly save him from drowning. And yet, man's intellect says, as soon as I know that your heart, your arm, your hand will grasp me and hold me, I'll be saved. Listen, God is reaching down, and the lost souls of this world need to reach out and let God take hold. Now, we sing an error. We sing a hymn that says, hold to God's unchanging hand. Listen, that's falsehood. We can't hold. It's God who does the holding. It's our hand that is extended in faith. That's our part. And God takes hold. And God won't let go. If you're saved according to the strength in your hand, then you are being saved according to your own capabilities. But salvation is of God. God takes the hope. And won't let go. So faith is more than just a mental acknowledgement that there's a supreme being, a God somewhere. Secondly, the faith that saves responds positively to the gospel. I want you to go to Romans again, if you haven't already left it. Romans chapter 1, verse 6. Sixteen, verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. Here's the gospel. You can find several verses throughout the scriptures you might call the gospel in a nutshell. And John 3.16 is our common one. Very familiar. But listen to this one. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, what is the it? It's the gospel. 
For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. We've got power here. God has extended his grace to us through the gospel. He has proclaimed the truth in it, and it's offered. Man gets stiff-necked, stubborn, and says, well, that's just somebody's opinion. I had a secretary one time who will die and go to hell because... She said, this book that you talk about is just a bunch of stuff that people thought up and put together. God's word is his offer to mankind. And the response that man must have is a surrender. And man gets stubborn and he doesn't want to lose his own will. You want to save your life? You want to have complete control of your life? You want to dictate its outcome? You go ahead and you lose your life. But he who is willing to give up his life to surrender himself to Jesus Christ is the one who will save his life in the end. You see, we have all who are Christian this morning surrendered. I give up. Lord, you have won the battle. I succumb. I yield. I submit. This is the attitude of salvation. What we must do. When Jesus was in the garden praying, and he wanted to get out of going to the cross, and he prayed, Lord, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, but he ended it by saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Now listen. If your will is more important than God's will, you better question your salvation. Who is supreme in your life and mine? Is it what I want to do, or is it what God wants for me that is supreme? When Paul was on his road to Damascus, he fell down with that huge light shining on him. He'd been very belligerent. He refused to surrender to what he'd been taught, what he had seen. He was going to stamp out the believers of, in Christ if he possibly could. But God got his attention. And the thing that happened to Paul was his will was surrendered and he said to to the Lord, what will you have me to do? Now, a person who wants to clench his teeth like a horse with the bridle in the bit in his teeth is uncontrollable. You've ever, if you've ever been on a horse that succeeded in his belligerence in getting the, the bit in his teeth, you can't control him. He had a will of his own and the the guy sitting on his back wasn't going to tell him what to do because he was in control. I've been on those horses. That individual who is so stubborn and determined to dictate his life 
is not in the will of God. It is that person who is yielding and responsive and has surrendered that will be saved. Thirdly, the faith that saves leads to a separation from sin. Clarence and Bob, you guys were getting right on my subject this morning in Sunday school class, but I want to I want to talk a little more about it. What you left me to talk about, and then the rest of you who went in the class maybe can pick up on a little bit of this. There needs to be a separation between the Christian and the non-Christian, and it ought to be possible to tell the difference. Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not unclean things. Now he had just been talking about being unequally yoked. I'm going to preach a sermon on that one of these days. You see, there are lots of Christians who get themselves in difficulty with the world by yoking up, by uniting in marriage or in business or in friendship or in partnership in some way with people who do not see things like you see them. And that is a sign of trouble any time it happens. Many girls have thought that they could transform their guys when they married them and they would become just like they wanted to be, only to discover that you just don't have that quite an easy a task. And so the unequal yoke begins to pull the marriage apart, pull the business apart, pull the friendship apart, because the Christian, if he is a Christian, has a, a concept as to how he ought to live that is different than the concept of the non-Christian. I made a terrible mistake in business one time in yoking up with a fellow who was not a Christian. And I discovered the hard way that I thought we ought to do business affairs this way and he thought we ought to do them this way and we were continually at battle. And so it is in all kinds of relationships, if we're not careful, we create problems for ourselves. We are going to give in and become like the non-Christian and therefore cannot be told the difference. Or we're going to have to stand our ground and be identified. And I think that one of the problems in our church today is that we have not been capable of being identified on the streets and in the schools and in the business places of our world, we can't see the difference between the two because Christian people, quote, 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 Christian people, are looking like and acting like and doing like the world. The faith that saves identifies people as different. We use the term conversion a lot. It's a good word. 
the change. There's something different about us. <clears throat> we use the term repent. That means, amongst other things, to set a new direction. To be sorry for what we have been doing and turn around and go in the opposite direction. And when a Christian, through pressure of the world or through his own stubbornness, decides that he ought to go back to doing sin again, he sets up a conflict, even in his own person. There is a part of him that says, don't do that. And there's the old devil coming along and saying, let's do it. There's nothing wrong with it. And so the conflict gets into the picture. The scripture says that when one becomes a Christian, all things have passed away. All things have become new. You're not the same person you were. And it doesn't make any difference in how hard you try to be like you once were. You can't be. You can't be. You're going to be unhappy, and there are lots of unhappy Christians because they have allowed this conflict to develop and have not been willing to stand separate from the affairs of the world. And that's what you guys were saying in Sunday school class this morning. And did a better job of it, I'm sure, than I did. I've got to quit, so I will here. The faith that saves is a faith that serves. And this is the theme that James was talking about as he wrote his thesis here on the subject. He said, show me your faith without any works. I'll show you mine for the works that I do. His point was, brethren, if you don't do the works of faith, you probably don't have it. You don't have it if you don't do it. If you have faith, it will be demonstrated in one's life by what he says or does not say, by what he does or does not do. Remember, we're always going to have a conflict if we try to mingle the two, and that's where we get into trouble. But Jesus said, Inasmuch as ye have done it or not done it, unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it or not done it to me. Our treatment of each other is our treatment of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon, to come back to my statement about knowledge way back early, said that there are three elements to faith. One is knowledge. That is, you've got to understand something. Nobody's going to be saved until he understands his loss. He's got to understand that. It's our job to, to teach and preach that so that people know where they are. That's not the main difficulty today. 
Most people know where they are if they would be honest with their intellectual capabilities. Secondly, they must assent to it, that is, agree that they're lost. Acknowledge it. Not only know it, but acknowledge it. And thirdly, they're going to have to make a commitment. Now here's the shortcoming. We don't have difficulty in finding people who in their mind know that there's a God in heaven, that Jesus Christ is his son, that he died on the cross, and that he arose again, and all of those things that we preach and teach have heard of all their art. They would agree in a moment's time. Yes, that is all true. They just won't give themselves as a drowning man to the arm of God who reaches down. I think there's no more valuable verse of salvation than found in Romans chapter 10. It was our close. Romans 10, 9 and 10, following. How to be saved? If thou wilt shout, is the word in King James, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God has raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You want to be saved? Do you believe in your mind? Then transfer that to that thing we call the heart, which is not this thing that beats in our chest, but simply that's the emblem that we use. The heart is the real person. Commit yourself to what you intellectually know and confess him before somebody Right here this morning, we're 65 or so strong in the number of people who will hear your confession. Confess before us that you know the Lord Jesus. Believe in your heart. Tell us about it. You'll be saved. You want to be saved? Verse 13 says, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, that's Romans 10, 13, shall be saved. But I ask you to call on the name of the Lord this morning. Right where you are, ask you to pray your own sinner's prayer and say unto God in heaven, Save me through your Son. I believe that he died for me. Once you've made that prayer, get out of your seat and come down this aisle and confess it before us. And the scripture says you'll be saved. You got that kind of faith? Put it into action. There's no difference between what Paul said and what James said. You are saved by the grace of God. If you believe, put your faith into action. You'll be saved. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.